The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks this evening. So we're getting close to the series of talks based loosely around Guy Armstrong's recent book on emptiness, sort of the central teachings of the Buddha, the whole path of the Buddha. This is the book we've been reading almost for a year now. Some of you have been using it, using it as a complementary text. And this topic of the Buddhist teachings really goes to the essence because the whole path, you know, the way the Buddha assessed his problem as a human being, our problem as a human being, is that uh, we're not seeing things clearly, right? We're doing our best. We think this is part of the problem. We think we're seeing things as they are. But you know how that goes. Just because we're certain that we're seeing things as they are doesn't mean we're actually certain. And this is, you know, kind of points to our reality delusion, right? The best, I think one of the best definitions for delusion or ignorance, spiritual ignorance, is thinking that we know. It's the absence of humility because the absence of that humility is there because we think we already know. So when we think we know, what happens? Well, we stop looking or opening. We stop being mindfully aware. Why would I be mindfully aware? I already know I'm at Common Ground. It's Sunday night. I'm our, I already know I'm Mark and this is who I am. So why do I need to actually feel and connect and be open to the present moment. And, and then the more we're not in that mode of being open, being mindfully aware, then it, it starts to feel threatening when we do open, when we are mindful, when we do feel what's here to feel. Because it's kind of wild, the present moment and the feelings that are there and the activity that's there. Wild in the sense that it's ungoverned, you know. But when we're in our thoughts about things, my thoughts about me, my thoughts about the world, well, there's a semblance of control because it's this mind that is constructing the picture, you know, the ideas about who I am, what's going on here, what I think about you. And so to come into the present moment means quite literally abandoning, not the thought so much, but abandoning the, the identification or the holding to the attachment to the thoughts, the dependence on the thoughts, and entering this more wild space. So these teachings on emptiness, it's, it's really what the mind comprehends or what the mind discerns when it spends enough time in the mode of being present or being open to things as they are. There may be thoughts coming and going in the mind, but when we're being mindfully aware, when we're being open, then the mind isn't confused by the thoughts that are coming and going. Well, that's just a thought being known. 
we don't take a thought, a concept, an idea, a mental image to be more than what it actually is. What is a thought or a mental image or a concept? What is that? I mean, just bring some concept to mind. It doesn't matter. Like I'm looking out the window, there's a big semi. So we could bring that concept to mind, like big trucks park on 27th Avenue. And that's a concept. It's an idea. And it feels to me, you know, someone who's invested in looking out and maybe sometimes seeing the sky and, and it's kind of pushing up against the maple tree there in a way that, you know, it concerns me. And it triggers a certain exposure like, I can't even control that, you know, like what happens around Common Ground. And as some of you know who live in this neighborhood, it's a big deal because they're parking, and a lot of semis are parking. And part of the, the history of this neighborhood is it's zoned industrial because it, in the past, used to be very industrial around here. But over the many decades now, it's kind of morphed into a much more residential area. And yet the zoning hasn't changed, so it's actually legal for semis to park for a certain number of days in the neighborhood. So there's some tension around this. But that thought, so that, that's I'm giving you all like the riffs on that one thought. And you know, all those riffs, the history, what I know, the neighborhood email and the complaints I've seen written in the neighborhood email list and all of that, it just masquerades as the reality. Like this is a problem. But directly, immediately, subjectively, having the thought that there's a semi parked out there as a experience being known, what actually is that? I mean, one thing we can say for sure, it's not much of anything. The thought there's a semi out on 27th Avenue. I mean, it, what is it? It's just a little blip of mental energy or whatever you'd call that. I mean, it's there instantaneously and then it's done, right? And even if for someone like me who's got an investment, there's the thought and then there's some visceral charge that arises, you know, correlated or in conjunction with the mental image or the thought, even that which seems a little bit more substantial that emotional feeling, it's not much of anything either, is it? It's sort of like a rush or a movement of anxiety or dread or heaviness or the burning of hatred and anger, you know. <laughs> but whatever it is, even if it's really, you know, toxic or unskillful or something like that, when you look at it in a moment to moment to moment, way, meaning what it actually is in the body and mind, it's not much of anything. It's just ultimately something being known. And that something being known, one of its primary characteristics is it's not much of anything. In Buddhism, we say it's impermanent or it's ephemeral or it's insubstantial. But, it, but when I'm in the identification with the thoughts that this neighborhood is being overrun by semis and somebody's got to do something about it or something like that. In being a Buddhist organization, we're nice. And so we tape little messages on the door letting them know that this is a Buddhist church 
you know, and we need the space around the building for parking, and if there's other places to park, that would be great. But just to see how all of that seemingly substantial thing that's a problem for me, a problem for the institution, a problem for the community, in a moment, it's just a thought being known or a feeling being felt. And then something else happens. And there's another feeling being felt or another thought being known or another sight being seen. And then something else. Like sand through the fingers, nothing really lasts very long. This is why it's nice to have some perspective and to remember like how many highs and lows, joys and sorrows, today, this last week, this last month, the last year, the last decade, through the course of our life, how many highs, how many lows, how many neutral experiences have we moved through? But isn't it interesting how the next high or the next low, from the point of view of being attached to my ideas, seems really important? But we've had so many highs and lows and neutral experiences. Because we're being asked, you know, the, these teachings on emptiness, we're really being asked to leave, beyond, leave behind something that we find very trustworthy. But just not because it's actually trustworthy, but because it's familiar, which is we've been very much dependent and identified and messing with our thoughts about things and the meaning our thoughts about things seem to construct. We live in the meaning our thoughts, the picture our thoughts paint, the meaning our thoughts construct. And because those thoughts, like we're endlessly telling stories to ourselves and sometimes to each other, right? So we're constantly patching up this conceptual meaning and we're living in it. And because of that, slowly, gradually, the mind becomes more and more and more and more dependent, attached to the thoughts and the meaning the thoughts construct, the picture the thoughts paint. And so anything outside of that appears to be scary because it's unfamiliar, not because it's actually dangerous. Even, I mean, it's so incredibly ironic that being connected with things as they are, being present, could like push our buttons. (laughs) As if like, actually seeing clearly, actually being open, actually feeling what's already here to feel could somehow increase danger. Because it's already this way. We're just having a more intimate or honest relationship with the way it is. Less distracted, less in denial, less lost in thought, and more just open, clearly aware, connected, mindfully aware, right? But in practice, you'll notice a lot of resistance to being present, right? I mean, that's one of the universal things. That's how you know somebody's really starting their practice because they come to you, like come to a teacher, and they talk about how hard it is to be present. And they want to give up. And you know somebody isn't far enough along when they think they're present. <laughs> you know, Because what they're aware of 
is they like the idea, they like the mental image of themselves being present. Like that idea and the picture that their mind creates about the idea of being present makes sense in terms of our ideas about ourselves. Like it makes sense in terms of the idea I have about Mark that I'd be interested in mindfulness and that I'd have a lot of you know, integrity and kind of effort, appropriate effort, and that I'd be good at it. I'd stick, to it, stick with it until I got good at it. But that's just all on the level of thought. It has nothing to do with whether there's actually mindful awareness. There's a great line from the person who wrote the Narnia. Yes, yeah, C.S. Lewis, but Narnia what? Nar- Chronicles. Um, yeah, C.S. Lewis. Because he was sort of a spiritual teacher in the Christian tradition in some ways. He reflected deeply about spirituality within that frame. And he, one of the things he said, it's as if, and this is a rough paraphrase, it's as if you, know, you, you think you've really gotten somewhere in your spiritual practice and then you realize you haven't even gotten out of bed. You've still got your pajamas on. You're still in your bed. But in your mind... You've imagined you've gotten out of bed, you put your clothes on, you've gotten yourself down to the church or did your prayers or you know, did your, gener- you know, your service or whatever your spiritual practices and you got somewhere and then you realize you've just been thinking about practice, thinking about becoming a saint, being a saint and you're just a guy in your bed having fantasy. And you know that it's kind of a profound betrayal when we realize how far ahead of ourselves we've gotten. In any part, it could be the same thing around a relationship where you're sort of already married, you've got kids, you're figuring out the, what are we going to name the kids, where are we going to go on vacation, and you haven't even come up with the nerve to say hi to the person yet. <laughs> but you can be way, you know, way out there because the, our mind is much more simple than we imagine it to be. It doesn't actually clearly distinguish imagination from reality or what we call reality. And part of that is, I mean, you might think, well, that's silly. But part of it is, it's because reality is also imagination. Like conventional reality is just that conventional imagination as opposed to all the other rifts we have within our own mind as we continue to imagine the stories we construct and cling to. And so the practice is really grieving the loss of whatever security we have in those worlds that we construct with thoughts and images, leaving that behind and going to this new place, which is always here, we just has been unrecognized because of the mental habits of fixating on our thoughts and mental images and becoming overly dependent on them. So this other world of just things in and of themselves, being open to things in and of themselves, that world is it feels like an altered state initially, even though it's sort of ordinary reality. Seeing, like right now, we can notice the scene, not that we're looking, because when we're looking at somebody or looking at something, we're probably to some degree under the influence of some story. Like, why am I looking at that? But when there's just seeing, right, just seeing being known, seeing being known, 
can you notice seeing without <clears throat> the experience of seeing being confused by any meaning the mind, the thinking mind is constructing about what you're seeing or whether doing the task is silly or something like that. But just seeing, just that, I mean, it's kind of a touching experience, you know, the visual experience. Not that we sense that, but there's some inherent sensitivity to the visual field. And can we notice how simple that is and how you don't start that or stop that, you know, as long as the eyes work and are open, even, you know, when they're closed, seeing happens. It's just not very interesting, right? But just that experience of seeing without being attached or controlled or governed by any conceptual meaning. We can do the same with hearing, right? Be aware of hearing. Same with touching. And it's a little more challenging, but even being sensitive to the movement of thought and the movement of emotion without being confused by the particular content of the thoughts. Like I mentioned, there's a semi parked outside on 27th Avenue. Like that thought can be noticed as a mental phenomena without the mind being confused by what that meaning, what that meaning connects with or you know, what other thoughts reverberate when that thought rolls through the mind. All of that mental activity, the thought itself, there's a semi parked on 27th Avenue, and all the other thoughts that reverberate can be just noticed as mental activity being known, right? So I'm kind of painting a picture, right? These are words, painting a picture to give us a sense of this other world. We In Buddhism, we call it Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. And uh, there's like a traditional chant that sort of points. This is sort of, I was mentioning this this morning in the talk, in the same subject really. And uh, like in early Buddhism, this was the object, the sacred object of devotion. Not some idea of heaven, not even some person like the historic Buddha, but Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. Right? What's here and now? This is our refuge. Nobody else can save us. Right? It's the heart or the mind relying on this turning toward or connecting with or opening to or resting in, resting with, Dhamma, the way it is, the way it actually is. Not the way the mind wants it to be or fears that it is. And what is the way that it is? This is being known. Right? What can what can what is the one thing that is happening now? The one thing that is known. Well that something is being known. And that encapsulates, as I said last week, for those who were here or weren't here, that encapsulates everything. Like When I say, oh, this is being known in a moment, 
And the mind recognizes, oh yeah, throbbing in my knee is being known. Or, oh, self-consciousness is being known. Or, oh, having the thought there's a semi-parked on 27th Avenue is being known. In that moment, that clear recognition that that is being known, that's it. That's all there is, right? That, that simply encapsulates the moment <coughs> that's being known. Now, and, and then the interesting thing is, and then the next moment it's something else. Whatever that moment was, that experience being known, is completely gone, and then there's another experience being known. Now, <clears throat> this may sound philosophical, but these words, these, you know, this concept that I'm, this picture I'm painting with words, is pointing our mind, our heart, to this other way of being. We call being mindfully aware, being open to the way it is where it is just that, something is being known, something is being known, something is being known. And this, that reality of something being known is the thing we become devoted to. Right? If you're a student of the Buddha, then you're going to become devoted because being intimate, clearly aware, intimate with the way it is, will transform your heart and mind you will not be the same person by getting interested in the way it is. Now, me saying that doesn't change anything, but you developing the interest, following through with the interest, cultivating the continuity of present moment awareness, then you can check it out and see if that is in fact true, that your life, or your rather your heart and mind, does become transformed. So when the nuns and the monks, in that devotional way, being devoted to the Dhamma the way it is, they they have this sort of traditional recitation where they say, you know, in terms of the Dhamma, that it is apparent here and now. It's nowhere else. It's always here and now. We never have to go somewhere. We never need a different moment to open to the way it is because it's the way it is now. This is the way that it is. We're not looking for a special moment or a different moment. It's here and now. It's timeless. right? So what we open to here and now is what we, if we were doing this practice 10 years ago or 10 years from now. Because what we're opening to, the Dhamma, the most relevant thing about the Dhamma, the way it is, is not what's here. But some of you have heard me say this, but what's not here. So what's discovered in the practice isn't what's here. Oh, this knee pain. It's mystical. It's special. No. Or the fact that I'm seeing a semi parked on 27th Avenue and whether that's a seeing experience or a thought being known, there's nothing special about objects that are being known. Even sublime objects. You see like the most amazing sunset or the most amazing piece of art or art show or whatever. Or the most despicable thing, you know, walking through a battlefield after people have been killed. You know, whatever you might experience, it's just something being known. 
But what rocks our world is what's not there, not what's there. That's why the term emptiness. It's what the mind, the wisdom in the mind doesn't find, thought it would find, but it doesn't find. So timeless meaning you're going to find what's not there whenever you look because it's never been there. That which you find is not there. Right? What do we find? I mean, we have words for this. What do we find is not there? Self. The sense of a permanent me, entity. We just don't find it there. So that's, that's part of this timeless thing. It's like uh, the Dhamma, the way it is, that the moment is empty of everything other than something being known, something being known, something being known, right? that's timeless. You can find that in any moment. You'll find the same thing in any moment. If you lived 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years in the future, if you're raised in this culture or that culture, if you cultivate present moment awareness, you will see what's not there. You will see this moment is empty of everything except this being known. So it's timeless in that way, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation. So there's something that you see as you do this practice, not as you think about this practice, but as you actually commit and engage, start over. Oh yeah, this is being known. Starting over means simply recognizing or remembering to recognize that this is being known. It's not, like I said in the guided meditation, it's not that you have to know, because the knowing is already happening. The sensitivity is already there, right? You're not trying to hear my voice. Hearing is already, the mind is already sensitive to sound and sight and thought, touch, smells and tastes. But we have to remember to notice, to recognize the sensitivity, right? Because it's easy to be forgetful, to be lost in thought. And then we may be hearing things, but if I'm lost in thought, I'm not aware that hearing is happening, right? Because I'm absorbed, lost in whatever you know, fantasy or whatever my mind is doing. So we're making the effort to remember. And when we do that with some integrity, some commitment, committedness, then you'll notice, it's like guarantee, you'll notice this um, forward, onward leading aspect of the practice. Because human beings like to learn. And so the mind recognizes that I'm in new territory. And just like a child that's got a new toy or is brought to the lakeshore ocean for the first time and they're playing in the surf, you know, there's just the interest and the experimentation. You don't have to like kids. I mean, as long as they feel safe enough, as long as you and I feel safe enough, there's an onward leadingness, right? Like a, the awe, the interest, the listening, the innocence, the humility that allows for that learning. It just all comes online. That the naturalness of being a learner, of letting life letting the Dhamma, the way it is, inform the mind or the heart or wisdom. Right? So this is that 
the mind being transformed that I mentioned earlier. And you'll notice that, that kind of natural curiosity, the natural attraction. It's just a matter of finding that sweet spot between being afraid of the newness and being bored because you're holding too much to your ideas, even your ideas of the practice. So you're sitting, you're really regular with your sits, and you've got your posture down, and you got your kind of you really memorize the techniques and you know how to do all the stuff. But the unbeknownst to the wisdom, the mind is still in the world of the ideas of Buddhist practice, still clinging to the ideas, but not aware that those are just thoughts being known. It's not actually in the present moment, in Dhamma, the way it is. It's being the idea of the meditator, right? And the experience, if that's happening, is boredom. Because the idea of being a Buddhist meditating, a meditator is boring. I mean, maybe the first time the idea comes to mind, it's a little juicy, because nowadays it's sort of cool. But if, if you're sitting for 30 minutes and that's your primary activity, is knowing without knowing that you're knowing, right? having the thought, yeah, I'm a Buddhist meditator doing the right thing, you know, starting over, directing my attention. But what's really happening is the mind is identified with those thoughts. That gets really stagnant. feels like nothing's happening because nothing's happening. right? It's just the mind is repeating, reconstructing the same mental picture. And it gets old. And then doubt can happen. And then you'll have this stance between trying hard and knowing that you're trying hard and thinking that you're doing it right or following the instructions and then collapsing into kind of some doubt because you've been overwhelmed with the evidence that nothing's happening. So stupid or blaming the technique or blaming the teacher or blaming the Buddha, you know, and then rallying and getting some new information and getting identified with and being being again this idea of doing it right and then doubt and crashing into feeling betrayed. And this can go on for a long, long time. I mean, decades, really. That basic pattern. And then, you know, if you're fortunate, you go see somebody and tell them what's going on. And then the person will ask you to describe, well, what do you do? And then generally the teacher will tell, can tell, oh, you're not actually being mindful. And I think the important thing is to have a lot of humility, as I said earlier in the, in the talk, about how challenging it is to be actually present. It's really an altered or it's an unusual event to be with things open to Dhamma the way it is. And it has a wild feeling a little bit, like these words sort of suggest. So again, just to go through these words, Describing Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation. So there's a taste of freedom as we get some momentum. Like as scary as it might seem or boring as it might seem, depending on what edge we're on, the edge of too much, too soon, scary. Not enough is happening, boring, right? But there's some... To, to the degree we're not hitting either of those and we're sort of in the 
really in the flow of the practice, there's a taste of freedom, a taste that everything's happening on its own. It's always been happening on its own. It's been okay. It is okay. It will be okay. And without at all contradicting the sort of relative truth that there's joys and sorrows, there's very real injustice and suffering, and there's very real moments of joy and happiness in us, around us. And it's all okay, it's been okay, it will be okay. Nature, the way it is. So there's this sort of non-denial of the relative, the reality of the relative suffering, for example, and the reality of Dhamma, the sense, the intuition of freedom and ease and peace that isn't contradicted by the relative truths of birth and death, injustice, delicious food and yucky food, you know, all the sort of twists and turns of life that just come comes with the territory of life. Loss, insecurity, praise. In Buddhism, you know, we have these eight worldly winds you might have heard of, the eight vicissitudes is another way they're described in the tradition. This is from the Buddha. Gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And just that, I mean, it's not exactly the same for each of us, but isn't it true that all of us bump into these eight things? And we don't know what's around the corner. None of us do, right? Maybe more praise, maybe more blame. To be experienced for oneself, realizable by the wise. Right. So those are the last two phrases here. To be realized, or to be experienced rather, for oneself. Meaning, it doesn't matter if we're good friends with a Buddha, a really awake person, because they can't actually do it for us. I mean, they, we can appreciate someone with wisdom modeling how to be mindfully aware, living with mindfulness, Right? That can be useful. In the same way, it can be very not helpful to be around a bunch of people who are just lost in their thoughts. Right? Because we tend, you know, as a social being, we tend to sympathetically vibrate with who we're around, which is why it's nice to have places like Common Ground where we have this shared value. You know, we're, could be, at times at least, a pretty diverse group of people but we have this one shared value, which is being interested in this path of mindful awareness, the opening to the way that it is. Right? So it, it helps. A lot of people say that. Yeah, and when I sit at Comic Con, it's a lot easier. But when I sit at home, it's not so easy. Well, we're sympathetically vibrating here together. you know. But if you went to the Mall of America or a bar or wherever, there's just not as much mental activity that is aiming toward opening to the way that it is. Distraction, denial is really what people use to get through their life, get through the day. Dangling carrots in front of us, running away from what's yucky and painful, hiding, pretending, denying, whipping things up, 
You know, it's a little bit like happens in politics where uh, people, media, whips things up so we don't notice these other things. So we're constantly sort of, and this is, it basically runs the economy. I mean, this is the real misfortune and is that this distractedness is good for business. So all the intelligent people in the culture, they use their intelligence to get better at distracting us, you know, telling us what we need, what we should do. And they're good at it because, you know, they get the jobs because they're smart and they know how to do their jobs. So we're going against the stream here. This devotion to Dhamma, to the way it is. And this is like if someone asks you, you know, you don't want to tell them you're a Buddhist. You want to say, I'm someone who's really devoted to the way it is. I want to live in alignment. I want to be intimate with the way it is. I don't want to die realizing that, oh my God, I haven't been awake. You know, there's that t-shirt, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a person, a female person, and it says something like, uh, oh my God, I'm 40 and I forgot to have children. And like a, a more profound version would be, oh my God, I'm 80, I'm dying, and I forgot to be present. You know, I forgot to be awake. How could I forget? But it's easy, right? Because we get swept away. We basically um, take our cues to a large degree from kind of the cultural vibe, which is we got a lot to do, we got to get ahead, and then we got to play hard too, you know, and when it all gets too much, then we got to disappear, you know, and we got drugs and alcohol and sleep and media to help us disappear. And then we have extreme restaurants and extreme sports and extreme other activities, you know, eco travel and when we need to be, you know, and then we have this sort of success ladder we need to climb. We have all these sort of things that we have to do. And we always imagine that, yeah, but when I am get for far enough ahead or get enough of that done, then, then I'll be present. You know, then I'll really, you know, when I get my vacation, then I'll really tune in. But we can't do that. Like even if we actually get to that place where we have some time, but if we have spent you know, countless moments being distracted, being caught up in our thoughts about things, you, c- you might be in the best monastery with the best teacher, teachers, optimal conditions, but you'll be there with a mind that's really good at distraction, really good ab- at obsession, really good at fantasizing and imagining and getting lost in all of that. I often tell people, like when I go on retreat, I don't see that many movies now, but you know, I do watch TV on, on the internet uh, through my portal. You know, we each have our own window into infinite entertainments. And, uh, and I notice when I go on retreat, even now, that it's like if I watched something that was intense in some way and I wasn't being mindful when I was watching that movie or program. Then when I'm on retreat and my mind's more settled, it's like whatever I couldn't actually be with just shows up. 
And like a lot of the movie will just replay itself right there. I'm not doing it. It's not like I scold myself, like stop thinking about that because I'm not doing it. It's just showing up. And then basically the only way through it is to be aware. Oh, now this is being known. But to be there with that uh, equanimity that I've been talking about, oh, it's just something being known. It's just this movie replaying in the mind and it's being known. And it feels like this, it looks like this, it's just this being known. And if we can be with the experience without distraction or denial or whatever, then it won't show up again. But if I get caught up in it, identified with it, suppress it, repress it, then it still has to keep replaying until there's a real cleanness of just that being known. Same with difficult interactions, right? This happens even at night. It's like we think we're out of the woods, out of the messiness of the day in our safe bedroom, but what pops up into the heart and mind? All the unfinished business. So why not just live in a way where we're digesting everything moment by moment by moment through this radical, kind, fearless presence? Okay, just this being felt, just this being known, just this being seen. And so thoroughly, fully here and now that there's nothing left. Right? There's something liberating. This is what I meant about that onward leading quality in the practice. We sense the flavor of liberation in this. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few folks. Questions you have about the talk tonight? Comments from your own practice that seem related? Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. Anybody like to start us off? Yeah, please. And say your name if you don't mind. My name is Mike. Um, uh, What you said earlier about everything being okay um, and it's all nature it reminded me, I guess, of the events of the past week um, down on the, the southern border. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had that thought when all of this was going on. I have two small kids at home, and it just, I mean, it was tearing my heart out hearing about all this. And so I had that thought, like, this is, you know, is this okay is this all okay and it it seemed like almost like getting identified with the anger was the right move mm-hmm. <laughs> so like it was it was almost like the thought like 99% of the time being equanimous and being um calm and kind and and all that is the right move but in this situation being identified with the anger feels like the right move so i guess I know it's not the right move, but <laughs> but like how I I don't know I guess how how do you work through that in a skillful way? Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, you know a lot of that identification with the anger is just trying to protect the heart because, like you described, that feeling of your heart being ripped out because of your willingness to see the images to kind of let the information in to let it land. And then especially if you're someone with children, it's uh, easier to have a a clearer visceral sense 
of what that might be like, right? So the empathy is more real, more alive for you. So to let that in, at some point, if you, if you maybe even in hindsight, you can even sense that place where the mind decided that the intensity of that feeling wasn't safe, that empathetic feeling wasn't safe, right? But is that actually true? So when the mind decides that it's not safe, then it's looking for some defense and getting angry. Uh, this is not, you know, then that's a way of no longer feeling what it feels like to know that families are being separated in that way. So it's, but it's not about being passive. It's just about learning to connect and to not pathologize what it feels like when the heart connects with the way that it is. So if we choose to listen to that news or see that news and we then have a feeling arise, then let's really be there for that feeling. So thoroughly there, I mean, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy and it can take a lot of practice, but that's our practice to sort of really feel that feeling. And then when you're really able to fearlessly feel what that feels like, knowing that families are being torn apart, and to feel what that feels like, then you'll see what your mind and heart and body's inspired to do. It won't be inspired to hate, but it might be inspired to do something, you know, if there's something that the mind can conceive of that might be helpful for those families, you know, whatever that might be. But not out of anger, but because the heart cares, right? Because what's the proximate cause for actual compassion? The heart that's willing to be touched by suffering. Compassion requires that exposure, compassionate action. Anger comes when there's some pain coming in, but we don't think we can handle, be intimate with the pain. So we build this, this idea. Somebody's, you need a target. You can't have anger without someone being bad. right? And that's interesting just to notice. Right? There's got to be an evildoer if there's anger. It's like I'm, and so you could still. I mean, when if you really let it in and you can just like be brokenhearted, feel, be touched that pain, you might be motivated to do something, and you might even use a loud voice when you do that thing. But it won't because you're angry. It's because you want to take care of the kids or you want to take care of the families, and it may not look that different on the outside, like to an observer. But within someone's heart will be radically different. Someone who's acting out of anger and somebody who's acting out of a fierce compassion, a fierce, fiercely compassionate response to a situation. One is a movement of love and the other is a movement of hate. One, the heart doesn't need to be contracted in any way for that movement to happen. Hate requires a separation, this dualistic separation between good and bad, which is a construction. It's a concept. Good and bad is a concept. It's just stuff happening. But just because it's just stuff happening doesn't mean we don't want to get involved. It actually frees up involvement or response, uh, involve, uh, responding. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for bringing that up. 
I don't want to imply that this is simple, the kind of exposure we have at times to suffering. And uh, we need a lot of forgiveness, how we are at times the person that's frozen, like I see in myself sometimes when I'm around suffering, kind of uh, sliding into a kind of helplessness. And even a nihilism, like it's not my responsibility, it's just off, I can't, can't deal with anymore, you know. And other times sliding into sort of being the controller, the doer, the one who's going to fix the, you know, the savior, you know. And who knows how many other not quite wholesome responses we have to the suffering in our lives and around us. But if our practice can't inform the kind of question or comment that Mike has brought up for us, what's, what good is it? So the whole point is that what we're learning in the more subtle practice of, oh yeah, it's just this being known. So what does that work look like then when we hear the news or something's happening in our family that maybe is requiring some kind of response or where a response might be helpful? Is it really allowing a more nimble, creative, um, response because precisely because the mind isn't fixed, it's, it's nature. It's just like it, it's a movement of love, which is like saying it's nature. And hate, when hate moves, it's it's really coming out of the bubble. This sense of being apart or separate or good and bad. Right. So in that sense, it's uh, it's not really connected. Yeah, time for one more comment or question if there's anything else that you'd like to bring into the room, sharing from your own practice or question you might have. Yeah, all the way in the back here. I'm going to pass the mic. Thanks. Back row here. My name is David, and um, I just want to thank everybody for being here because... It, this practice helps me a lot. I went to visit my little brother a week ago, and he has multiple sclerosis and osteoporosis, and he broke both of his hips, and these sort of things. It is difficult to f- face this, and I'm not sure I would have had the courage to go visit him and spend a week with him uh, otherwise, and had I not had the skills I'm learning here, I think it would have been more difficult than it was. I mean, I just had to keep telling myself, just, what can I do? What can I do? Well, what can I do? Well, I can listen. I can be compassionate at every single moment. I can listen and be compassionate. I don't have to have an agenda or a plan of action or or a medical plan or whatever, right? I just, all I have to do is be loving at every minute that presents itself. And be patient. And it was hard, but it worked out okay. That's yeah, thank you, David. And you can imagine in that sort of situation, and maybe we have our own version of those more complex, painful situations where it may appear in our mind, at least when we're tired, that avoiding or putting off 
makes more sense than showing up or engagement. But I'd be curious, you know, David, if if in that engagement and the uncertainty that I'm imagining was there, whatever else might have been there, was there like a lightness, a, a sense, an intuition of the freedom, like <clears throat> not being afraid, not having to avoid it. There's some freedom in knowing that the heart, the mind, and body can show up here without needing a plan, without knowing where this is going to lead. And this is good because there's a shadow in Buddhist practice of like avoiding commitment or avoiding engagement because it's messy. So there can be a, a misunderstanding. But it's really what what we're missing is the attachment, not the commitment or the engagement. So as we move forward in our life, it's not like we avoid commitment or engagement, but we're curious about whether there needs to be attachment where there's engagement or commitment. Like, What's commitment? What, what's showing up? What's loyalty to a certain situation for whatever reason, we might have some passion or some interest or some connection to something, building something beautiful or fixing something, supporting something somewhere where there's pain. So we have some particular connection to some project. What is a loyalty, a commitment to something without attachment? And so we have a word, this is why we use compassion or love, because it has a light feeling. And especially we need to reform our thoughts about compassion. So we think of being compassionate as a liberated, light, beautiful way of being, not a heavy or um, painful way of being. It's true, in a, almost by definition, that compassion arises because the heart is exposed to suffering. But compassion itself, in Buddhist terms at least, is a liberated, a liberating and liberated quality in the heart and mind. Right? It's beautiful. It's not a heavy, painful state. Even though it arises in conjunction with the heart, seeing, feeling, recognizing at least, suffering. But there's some freedom in not being afraid of the suffering being able to show up, being able to do, even if it's like David was saying, you know, just, I can be loving, I can be patient, I can listen. Yeah, it's a nice place to end. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just a minute or so to take a couple breaths together. Trusting the silence. And it's really nice. We don't have to hold on to the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.